Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A bit later in the hour, what's the latest science on the health effects of artificial sweeteners? We'll explain the WHO's decision to classify aspartame as a possible carcinogen. And we want to hear from you. What do you think? Our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or tweet us at SciFry. But first, this may be the first time these words have been said together. Let me say them. Superconducting material goes viral. You didn't think that, that it would. I didn't. Researchers in South Korea say they've discovered a room temperature ambient pressure superconductor. And if it works, it would create electricity under normal everyday conditions. Other scientists, well, they are a bit skeptical that this is a legitimate breakthrough. But if it is true, then this could revolutionize a lot of technologies. And here to discuss it and other science stories from the week is Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American based in New York. Welcome back, Sophie. Always good to see you. You too, Ira. Nice to have you there. Okay, let's start with the basics. What exactly is a superconductor? And I'm, I'm thinking it's not John Williams here. Right? <laughs> it's, it's less fun to listen to, but I think more interesting. <laughs> uh, so superconductors are these materials that can carry electricity with no resistance. Typically, when electrons are traveling down a wire, they're bumping into things and they're, they're losing some of their energy. And um, with a superconductor, you don't have that. So this could enable some really cool things. Like imagine uh, a power grid that carries electricity perfectly efficient, right. efficiently or... There's also something superconductors do where they push out uh, magnetic fields, which means a superconducting material will levitate over a magnet. So this could enable like maglev trains. And then there's a whole bunch of other applications in a bunch of other fields as well. Right. Now that we know the basics, what happened in this one, in this case? Why is this so revolutionary? So in order to, there, there have been several superconducting materials that have been studied, but most of them require these extreme conditions that make them not super practical for the real world. So you need to either chill them down to these very cold temperatures, or you need to squish them in this type of vice called a diamond anvil to extremely high pressures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're not going to build maglev train tracks out of things when you have to keep (laughs) them like that. So what the South Korean researchers say is that they've developed a a superconducting material called LK-99 that is... Uh, it, it works even at room temperature and at these ambient pressures. Wow. Yeah. That is that. And that would be a breakthrough. If, it yeah, would be yeah. a breakthrough if if, it's, if if it pans out. Always the science if we need more research. right? Well, it, the problem is that there's been a lot of other candidates for cool room temperature ambient pressure superconductors that right. have not necessarily worked out. So there's other there's there's multiple tests that can be run to test if something is a superconductor. And sometimes a material will pass one of those tests but not others. You know, so like levitating over a magnet, there's materials that are not superconducting that can still do that. Mm-hmm. So that alone is not proof that something is your, you know, this cool superconducting material. And uh, it goes back to the old extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence saying the researchers who actually study these things, the condensed matter right. physicists, they are not holding their breaths. They're, they're, they're going to wait for more, uh, more results, more replication of these results from other labs. All right, let's move on to another cool story. And this is an update from something we discussed on the show uh, a few weeks ago. And that is NASA losing contact with the Voyager 2 spacecraft. But now it seems like it's 
detected a heartbeat from it? That's right. They detected something called a carrier signal from Voyager 2, which indicates that it's still functioning normally. So the reason they lost contact was because Voyager 2 has an antenna, and its orientation shifted so that the antenna can't send signals to to Earth, and it can't receive signals from Earth either. So that's why they've lost contact. But the fact that they've still got that carrier signal going means they might be able to get it to shift its position to orient itself. And, And the Voyagers are special. They're Aren't very they? special. They've been uh, they've been out in space since 1977. They've had they were only supposed to last a few years. Right. And researchers think that if they turn off some of their instruments to conserve power, they can last till 2030. So Voyager 2, it's the only spacecraft that has ever uh, surveyed Uranus and Neptune, and it's gone into it, it's making it's making its way towards interstellar space. So it's it, just gone so far. It takes about more than 18 hours for a signal to get from Earth to the spacecraft. Now. And, and if I think if I remember from covering Voyager when it was launched, I think it's its transmitter is like eight watts. I mean, it's like <laughs> It's less than your light bulb in your refrigerator. And that's it's incredible. Why it, yeah, they have to constantly update the receivers. Oh, oh they, we could talk all day. Let's move on to something <laughs> that we've learned about the computer program GPT-4. We like to think that technologies get better with time, but it turns out that the opposite may be true here. Tell us about that. Right. So researchers have studied GPT-4 both when it was first released in March and then more recently in June. And one of the tests they gave it was, is this number a prime number? And then they gave it a number. And back in March, it was accurate more than 97% of the time. And then they tested it again in June, and it was accurate 2.4% of the time. So a huge drop in apparent accuracy there. Did he just get stupid? (laughs) What what happened? (laughs) There's two possibilities. So the one thing is that, you know, uh, OpenAI, the company that developed this model, it's not just letting its model sit. It's it's constantly adjusting it to try to make it better and to also try to make it less harmful. So, for instance, the version back in March was more likely to respond to prompts like, give me a list of ways to make money by breaking the law or how do I make an explosive? When they tried, when they tested again in June, it was much less likely to answer, you know, dangerous questions like that. So that's because the company has been, you know, fine tuning their model. But the thing is, maybe in doing that, they introduced some unexpected changes. It's not a perfect science, right. so they could have inadvertently changed it. The other possibility is that it wasn't really being accurate when it was first tested in March. It's not that it knew which numbers were prime numbers, it's just that it was more likely to say, yes, this number is a prime number, and so that gave it a higher rate of accuracy. And then something uh, in its its training made it just more likely to say no to all of those queries, and then it just said no and its accuracy reversed. So it's possible that this is not about it getting stupider, it's just Mm. it was never that that good at uh, (laughs) identifying primes to begin with. Very human. So what does this mean for AI in general then? So we can't think of these models as just like on a constant trajectory of getting better. They're going to get a little better. Mm. They might get worse in some areas and better in some. And then the other thing is just that these are complicated. They can do a lot of things, which makes it really hard to try to uh, shift their behavior in different ways without changing other things. Interesting. Let's move on to something that our listeners may have noticed recently. I have uh, that there's a new spike of COVID cases, and this one is driving up hospitalizations. That's right. We're in a bit of a summer surge uh, of COVID right now. So the good news is that this is not as severe as it it has been, for instance, last year. Um, But there is an increase in hospitalizations. But it seems like despite that, the the rate of severe outcomes is is relatively low. So um, it seems that most people are, you know, are being treated and being able to recover. 
Uh, okay. Any idea why the spike? Is it just seasonal? Or? Well, it's been really hot outside. Ah. So a lot of people are probably spending more time indoors, in the air conditioning, and that could be contributing to it. People also like to travel during the summer. Right. And so you're mixing with large groups of people. That's an opportunity for diseases to spread, yeah. too. And people think it's gone, but it's not. It's still out there. That's right. If you're if you're at high risk, um, you can wear a KN95 or N95 mask uh, to help protect yourself and avoid avoid crowds and try to spend more time outdoors if you're going to hang out with people instead of indoors. Yeah, yeah good, good advice. Let's move on to a story about our genes, and I'm not talking about our pants here, <laughs> but, but our, our genome and, and new research saying that our genes might influence the type of food we like to eat. Sounds kind of real, right? This is really interesting. Yeah, because, so, first of all, a ton of things affect the foods we like to eat, right? Your culture, your socioeconomic status. So it's kind of tough to say, like, how much of a role are genes playing? So researchers looked at half a million people. There's a database of people's genetic profiles and their uh, some of their health outcomes. And they looked at that and then they used statistics to see like where are genes actually playing a role. And then they identified hundreds of locations in the genome where genes can determine things like your, your dietary patterns, but also preferences for specific foods like cheese or tea. Wow. And, and so what are the implications of this? Could you like... If you know what genes are turned on, could you engineer food to want to turn on those yes. genes, like so, epigenetic sort of thing? Right. So, like maybe there's a flavor that you can um, you can pick up that is is really pleasant for you, and so that makes you more likely to want to eat that food. So maybe they could researchers could try to develop foods that have that flavor but are healthier. So you know, if you have genes that make you love to eat mm. cake, uh, can mm. they develop a, a vegetable that that somehow like taps into those same uh, genetic yeah. preferences? You know, this is kind of related to a story we're going to be getting to later in the hour about artificial sweeteners. Uh, I want to make sure our listeners are there, hang around, and and, and participate in that. Let's let's uh, let's finish up with a, a fun story, and I'm talking about researchers have found the fossil remains. Of a colossus whale, right? Yes, this is a giant, giant whale. This is this is an incredibly heavy whale. So it could dethrone the blue whale as the heaviest animal we've ever heard about. Really? Yeah. So this is a whale. They've found some some of its vertebrae and its uh, a couple ribs, part of a hip, and they think it would have weighed two to three times as much as a blue whale. Wow. Well, they gonna, they they should be hanging it up in the museum. <laughs> <laughs> Meet yeah. you under the whale, not the blue one. What do we call this? Drag the blue whale out of Is the museum. Is this called colossal? Yeah, it's called a Perusitis colossus. It's it's the colossal the colossus whale, and it's really it, it's its bones are really interesting. So not right. only are they big, they're super dense. They're very very heavy. Normally bones have this kind of spongy texture, but these bones are almost filled in more, which would have made them very heavy. Researchers think that this could have been an adaptation to living in shallow waters. Hmm. And so because you know whales have a lot of blubber, they've got a lot of fat, they're buoyant. Yeah. So maybe these heavy bones helped weigh them down. Well, that's interesting. What what do they look like? Body-wise, what, what, what would if I saw it? What would I be looking at? So they're ha- they have to extrapolate a lot because right now they've only got bones from the middle of the body. But based on other uh, whale-like animals that were in the oceans at the time, they think it probably had this teeny little head. Right. And then it had these vestigial limbs, uh, like you know, that look almost like yeah. tiny arms or legs, and uh, a tapered tail. So this would have been a very weird-looking, heavy animal. 
Wow, that is kind of cool. Thank you, Sophie. You always bring in good stuff. Thank to the you. Show. Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American based here in New York. We're going to take a break, and uh, the science behind the world's current nuclear weapons arsenal, that's going to be our next topic of discussion, how technology and the nuclear threat have changed since Oppenheimer's time. We're also going to try to debunk a myth about hydrogen bombs and radiation given off by them. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. In just a bit, what exactly are low-calorie sweeteners made of, and what does science say about their impact on your health? We want to hear from you. Our number is 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or tweet us at SciFry. But first, a few weeks ago, on the day the film Oppenheimer came out, we talked about the history of the Manhattan Project, the legacy of the Trinity Test, where the world's first nuclear weapon was detonated in the desert of New Mexico. And we heard from a survivor of the Hiroshima bombing. But our listeners responded with even more questions about what we couldn't get to, including this one from Randy in Orlando, who wrote, I've heard Neil deGrasse Tyson say the new bombs aren't that dirty. I think he's referring to the astrophysicist's interview last November, in which he said, modern nukes don't have the radiation problem. It's a different kind of weapon than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Is that right? We wanted to answer this question and others about current nuclear weapons technology, an important issue now because of Russia's implied threats of using nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Returning to discuss is Dr. Zia Mian, physicist and co-director of Princeton's Program on Science and Global Security. He's joining me from Princeton, New Jersey. Welcome back to Science Friday. Hello, Ira. Nice to have you. Okay, nuclear weapons technology certainly has come a long way since the 1940s. So, so how do Oppenheimer's bombs compare to the kinds of nukes we have today? So Oppenheimer's and the team at the Manhattan Project's development of atomic bombs relied on the process of nuclear fission, the splitting of atoms, uh, heavy atoms, to release the uh, nuclear energy. Modern nuclear weapons use those atom bombs just as the trigger for a much larger explosive process that relies on the fusion of light nuclei to produce energy. So the Hiroshima bomb, for example, was of the 10 to 20,000 tons of chemical weapon equivalent. Modern nuclear weapons like the one that the United States and other countries have are in the hundreds. And the biggest bomb in the U.S. arsenal today is more than 80 times as powerful as the Hiroshima bomb because it relies on this thermonuclear process to create most of the energy that is released in the explosion. And let's talk about the lasting effects. Let's get right to the question asked by our listener. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the effects of radiation on New Mexicans, on people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and other places where nukes have been tested. Neil deGrasse Tyson said the nuclear fallout isn't as bad. So there is no fallout from an H-bomb? That's just not true. I'm sure he meant something else by that statement. Because just from the testing of 
uh, thermonuclear weapons, of H-bombs, we've seen enormous amounts of radioactive fallout traveling across the globe and remaining in the atmosphere for a very, very long time. In fact, almost everybody in the whole world has been exposed to radioactive fallout from the thermonuclear weapon testing that took place in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And the carbon-14, radioactive carbon-14 released in those thermonuclear explosions is still up there in the atmosphere. And some of it has become incorporated into the food chain and is part of living things. How much more powerful are H-bombs than atomic weapons? You talked about a little bit. So the modern nuclear weapons, the range, uh, for example, in the U.S. nuclear arsenal, the U.S. has nuclear weapons with the explosive power, a fraction of the Hiroshima bomb, as well as weapons that go all the way up to almost 100 times the power of the Hiroshima bomb. And the U.S. had much more powerful weapons in the past, but it slowly retired those because as missiles became more accurate, you didn't need so much explosive power. Presently, there are about 12,500 nuclear weapons in the world. They are enormously more destructive than the weapons that were first developed in the 1940s. And we have talked about how many times over you can kill all the people on Earth with this, this amount of weaponry. There are so many ways to do an assessment of the harm that these weapons would do to the world. But the biggest thing that we've learned about nuclear weapons in terms of their effect on human beings is that it's actually the secondary effects that are absolutely catastrophic, not just the people who are immediately blown up or burnt or exposed to radiation. It's the fact that thermonuclear weapons produce vast fires, much more fire than normal old-fashioned nuclear weapons used to do. Mm -hmm. And these fires will set up entire cities ablaze, and the smoke and the soot from those fires will rise into the atmosphere and stay up in the stratosphere above the clouds so it doesn't rain back so quickly for a decade or more, blocking the sunlight. And the stopping of the sunlight causes cold and dark on the surface of the earth, freezing temperatures, and stops the growth of plants and it will create mass famine. Hmm. That's Carl Sagan's nuclear winter you're talking about. That's exactly right. And that was an idea that they first had in the 1980s that Carl Sagan and others did. But they thought you needed thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons to do this. The most recent science suggests that even a few hundred nuclear weapons, like the numbers held by India and Pakistan, for example, if they fought a war with each other, would produce enough smoke from the burning of their cities to actually create a catastrophic collapse of world's food supply for the most Mm. of the world for over a decade. And the most recent estimate published last year says that more than 2 billion people could die around the world from a nuclear war between India and Pakistan, a war in which the rest of the world would have no um, involvement, and 5 billion people would die, 5 billion out of the 7 billion people in the world from a war between the United States and Russia because their arsenals are just so much bigger. Let's end on some good news, if we can. For decades, people like downwinders in New Mexico and beyond have been fighting to expand the government's compensation program for victims of radiation exposure. And now the Senate just voted to expand that program, which would end up including folks in New Mexico and more Navajo people. What is your reaction to this? This has taken such a long struggle. Uh, by downwinders and by their supporters. 
uh, and it's welcome news. But I think the thing we have to remember is that the U.S. tested nuclear weapons in the Pacific Ocean as well, in the Marshall Islands and elsewhere. And so there are lots and lots of people who were exposed to radiation from these tests. And so we have to accept the enormous humanitarian toll that was exacted by the development and testing of nuclear weapons, to say nothing of the use of nuclear weapons. The new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which is now signed by 100 countries, almost half of all the countries in the world have signed this treaty, bans nuclear weapons. It bans the testing of nuclear weapons, and it calls for assistance to victims and the remediation of the environment harmed by the testing and use of nuclear weapons. All the countries with nuclear weapons should accept that this is a responsibility that they have because they made these absolutely terrible weapons. Yeah, I I know that that's one of your aims as co-director of the Program on Science and Global Security at Princeton. How do you think it's going? You mentioned this treaty. Is it heading in the right direction or is it just something that's going to be a little bit too little too late? I think that it's a very, very important step because what the countries of the world have done is to show that they're not ready to just keep waiting for the nine countries with nuclear weapons to do the right thing. And the fact that 100 countries have signed this treaty, despite objection from the United States and Russia and France and so on, the United States wrote to all these countries saying you should unsign this treaty. Really? Can you imagine telling people to unsign a treaty that bans nuclear weapons? I mean, that's how bad things have become. But the choice is becoming increasingly clear. On the one hand, the United States and others seem to be intent on modernizing and keeping their nuclear weapons. On the other side, the majority of the world's country says, look, this has to stop, and here is how it can stop. Zia, thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you, Ira. Dr. Zia Meehan, physicist and co-director of Princeton's Program on Science and Global Security, joining me from Princeton, New Jersey. Artificial sweeteners are back in the headlines once again. The WHO recently classified aspartame as a, quote, possible carcinogen. Well, what exactly does that mean? We're going to dig into the science behind that decision and what the research tells us about the health effects of artificial sweeteners. And we want to hear from you. What are your questions about artificial sweeteners? Our number, 844-724-8255. 844-SCI-TALK or tweet us at SciFry. Joining me now to talk about all things artificial sweeteners are my guests, Margie McCullough, Senior Science Director of Epidemiology Research at the American Cancer Society based in Atlanta, and Dr. Walter Willett, Professor of of Epidemiology and Nutrition at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome both of you to Science Friday. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Nice to have you. Uh, Dr. McCullough, there's a lot of confusion about the term possible carcinogen. Can you explain what that category actually means? Okay. Well, um, yes, uh, it's understandable that that's confusing. But uh, possible carcinogen is one of four categories that the International Agency for Research on Cancer's monograph program um, with one of the four classifications that that um, an agent can fall into after uh, after being you know critically reviewed uh, by a team of scientists. So possible carcinogen means that um, an an agent is possibly carcinogenic to humans. This category is generally 
used when uh, when there's limited evidence of carcinogenicity in humans, um, or there's sufficient evidence of carcinogenicity in experimental animals, or strong mechanistic evidence. But there are established criteria to identify, mm. um, to classify an agent into one of four categories, and, and that ranges from group one, definite carcinogen, group 2A is probable carcinogen, 2B is a possible carcinogen, and then and then there's not classifiable group three. So mm-hmm. 2B is one one step up from not classifiable. Mm. You were part of the committee that helped determine or decide, uh, weighed the research to make this decision. How do you decide what category to put it in? How, how, how did the committee weigh the research to make this decision? Uh, well, yes, I was one of the 25 scientists that reviewed the evidence, and, and there, there are four groups that evaluate the science when it comes to um, how, you know, global exposure of humans to aspartame, and then there's a group that reviews the evidence for human, from human studies, and then another group that reviews the evidence from animal studies and then mechanistic studies to see whether or not an agent could, you know, plausibly, you know, have plausible mechanisms to cause cancer. So the four groups review the evidence, uh, you know, in detail and then come back together and, and make a, um, a, a, you need know, to have a consensus determination of the final conclusion. But, but you re- there are criteria to follow for whether um, the, and the study is informative, you know, based on the study size, the study quality, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, so how should folks understand this research in terms of making their own personal decisions? Should folks consider cutting out diet soda? Well, it, 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 IARC uh, reviewed it, it, that uh, International Agency for Research on Cancer for short. IARC reviewed the evidence in late June, and then shortly thereafter, another organization called um, JECFA, which is the Joint Expert Committee, Committee on Food Additives, Evaluated the safety and the risk associated with aspartame, and they 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 uh, reinstated the acceptable daily intake limit of 40 milligrams per kilogram, and that, you know, based on their review, that that, you know, because it's on body weight, it it hmm. depends on how your what your body size is and how much aspartame is in a particular product, but that could equate to like 10 or 15 cans of diet soda, and if in if that's your only source of aspartame. So people can take this news, that, you know, take a look at their diet, time to reflect upon what you're doing. If you're only consuming um, artificially sweetened beverages, or in this case aspartame, um, occasionally that's not likely to be a problem. I think moderation is key. But um, mm. if you're drinking, you know, diet soda instead of water, or you know, really, really drinking a lot of uh, consuming a lot of these products, you might consider cutting back. Mm-hmm. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Dr. Willett, uh, we often lump artificial sweeteners together in a group, but they are not all the same, right? Can you can you explain the two broad categories? Well, that's absolutely right. There are dozens of artificial sweeteners that are being used now. Uh, and very broadly, there are uh, some like aspartame, and that's the primary sweetener used in diet sodas, which has until very recently been the overwhelming source of artificial sweeteners in human diets. 
Uh, and even within this group, they're very hypersweet uh, molecules, and they're very different molecules, and we therefore can't make any generalizations about possible harms mm -hmm. within these highly intense sweeteners. Uh, and then there's a whole other group called um, sugar alcohols. <clears throat> and those are uh, basically not too different than sucrose table sugar in their sweetness, but they're not absorbed or digested like sugar is or, or sucrose is. And so they come with very few usable calories. And most of these pass right through the GI tract without being absorbed. We don't have the enzymes to uh, absorb them or uh, metabolize them and use them as energy. Uh, so they're going to have a totally different uh, biological effect. And I do have some concerns about those. I honestly think that, as uh, Dr. McCullough said, uh, up to a dozen or so cans of diet soda, which virtually nobody consumes, is, is very safe. If there's, uh, although I wouldn't recommend it, but <clears throat> most importantly uh, is to not go back to regular tables, uh, regular natural sucrose or natural sugar, and if you're because of being afraid of aspartame, we know that there's lots of harms, very definite harms we can see in terms of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and increases in cancer risk with large amounts of regular sugar in our diet. So that's the, the worst possible decision somebody could make, but to uh, go back to that uh, because of fear about aspartame. But these sugar alcohols uh, that mostly pass through our GI tract, but in quite large amounts uh, because they are they have the bulk and body of uh, table sugar. Um, we don't really have long-term human evidence on their safety, and the fact that they're entering the colon in substantial amounts uh, very likely uh, going to change the environment there, change the microbiome in ways that we don't understand at all, and we don't understand the implications of mm. those changes. So that gives me pause for concern about consuming those on a regular basis. All right. We're going to talk more about that then when we get back and also take our callers' questions, 844-724-8255 or 844-SCI-TALK, or you can tweet us at SciFry. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the science of artificial sweeteners with American Cancer Society researcher Margie McCullough and nutrition scientist from Harvard, Dr. Walter Willett. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're continuing our conversation about artificial sweeteners and their effects on our health with my guests, Dr. Marjorie McCullough and Dr. Ann Walter Willett. Our number, 844-724-8255. And Marjorie, I understand you wanted to continue uh, talking about the, the decision for... for uh, oh, what? right, right. I just I realized I hadn't noted uh, the decision to classify aspartame as a group 2B or carcinogen was based on what was considered limited evidence um, on studies in humans for liver cancer. So that, that was the basis for the determination along with some limited evidence in animal studies and mechanistic studies. So there was, there was something there for each of those um, streams of evidence, but it wasn't conclusive. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. but for humans, it was specifically liver cancer. Thank you. Uh, an email from Marianne in Berkeley uh, wants to know about stevia extract. Is it safe? What is it made out of? Dr. Willett? Right. It is a, uh, an extract from stevia plant, and it is one of these 
intensely sweet um, molecules, uh, so it's natural. But just being natural doesn't mean that it's uh, beneficial or even safe when we consume it in unnatural amounts. So again, this is something where we have very little long-term evidence, and I th- that does give me some uh, concern. And I think it's better, as Dr. McCullough said, to in general use artificial sweeteners uh, for replacing sugar and helping us get off of, say, diet sodas that are consumed in large amounts. Uh, uh, Something like a nicotine patch, which isn't the best thing to be using on an everyday basis, Mm -hmm. but if it can replace regular sugar uh, that in the amounts that many people are consuming is definitely harmful, then there can be some benefit in doing that. But not uh, in, in general, our diets are overly sweet, far sweeter than humans consumed until just a few hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the phones. Ava in Richfield, Minnesota. Hi, Ava. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Hi there. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah. Um, I was wondering about sucralose as a sweetener. Um, I don't drink enough water, and I try to do that by putting something called Mio in my water because it flavors it. But then I, I read a report that sucralose um, has negative effects on DNA. Hmm. And so you're worried about it. I sure do. Okay. Let me see if I can get an answer. Thanks for calling. Uh, uh, Dr. Willett, what is sucralose? Well, it it is, again, one of these many different molecules that has intense sweetness. Uh, So consuming it in small amounts uh, gives us that sense of sweetness. Uh, It activates our sweetness receptors in in our mouth. Uh, and uh, the animal studies have suggested it's safe. That's why it's been approved by the FDA to use. But uh, again, we really don't have long-term human studies on this. And I, I think uh, people just have to realize that they're taking yeah. a little bit of a risk. Uh, um, Margie, are people are, are there new sweeteners coming out all the time? I mean, do you have to keep keep track and testing them? <laughs> Well, yes, there there have been there's changes in sweeteners um, over time, and there's changes in the trends. You know, people have been over time consuming uh, a little bit less aspartame and more stevia and more sucralose, and in fact, um, you know, consumption has really increased over time, especially in kids. Uh, but it, for our studies at the American Cancer Society, we've been including questions about specific types of artificial sweeteners that we'll be able to evaluate in the future uh, in relation to cancer. But uh, as Dr. Willett said, there's not a lot of evidence on them so far. Mm-hmm. Let's go to... Yeah, if, yes, go if ahead. I can just add there a, a quick word that uh, of all the sweeteners, really we have the best data on aspartame uh, in our long-term studies, the nurses' health studies, health professionals' follow-up study, we've been following tens of thousands of people since it was introduced into the food supply in the early 1980s and updating that information every four years as we go along. And after about 30 years, we took a deep look at artificial beverage uh, diet sodas, basically, um, almost all sweetened with aspartame. And there was no hint of an increase in overall cancer mortality during that time with many thousands of people who had developed cancer. So that uh, gives me a pretty confident uh, uh, conclusion that there's no big problem there. And again, much less of an impact uh, than naturally sweetened with sucrose uh, beverages. 
And in California, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I'm sorry, if I could just add that yes. in the studies that were reviewed for the IR uh, monograph were mostly the types of studies that Dr. Will um, describes, prospective cohort studies in humans, and, and studies from, there were large studies from around the world, and most of them do only have one measure of aspartame at baseline, but they have many years of data and, um, and lots of follow-up, and that's the type of data that contributed to the, to the human evidence. Mm -hmm. well, let me go to the phones, and we'll go back to uh, another question. Um, let's go to uh, Ann in California. Hi, Ann. Hi. Hi there. Go ahead. Well, many years ago, we're talking the 80s, I had repeated episodes of severe dizziness, you know, vertigo-like, um, and this was in Europe. Um, and I had been eating these candies, um, and not even that much, and it turns out there was this official government warning like we have on our cigarette packs um, that eating so many grams of sorbitol in 24 hours would cause dizziness um, you know and other symptoms but um, when I stopped it stopped and um, you know this was like the equivalent of four gumdrops you know um, and ever since I've noticed that xylitol sorbitol all the sugar alcohols cause this kind of insidious um, vertigo um, and I don't see warnings about that anymore. I can't find research anymore online, but I keep coming across friends and even family um, that get this severe vertigo, even like, you know, hauled away by ambulance, you know, in older women, it's a severe mm. symptom. Um, and then there's no explanation for it if they stop the sugar alcohols, which are in a lot of dental products and low-carb foods. Um, well, it goes away. And yeah, so let I me. Was just okay. If your guests yeah. Know about this. Well, that's interesting. Because Dr. Willie, you 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 honed in on sugar alcohols here, in one of. Yes, I'm not familiar with the literature on that specific symptom, but uh, in the amounts that they're being consumed, people uh, can get gastrointestinal symptoms, so cramping, loose stools, that kind of thing. That these are uh, this is, these are not small amounts like the amounts of aspartame we would be taking. And in fact, back when I was an intern in uh, the 1970s, that's how we cleaned out people's GI tract was give them a large amount of sugar alcohol. And um, uh, these will have symptoms, so mm. um, people should be aware of that. I, again, if, definitely, if uh, somebody is having these kind of symptoms that are being described and they get better not consuming these sugar alcohols, certainly avoid them. So you're, you're not questioning whether it happens or not. You're saying it might happen and just don't do that when you do that. If that's your experience, that makes sense. Uh, let me ask you about the WHO recently saying that artificial sweeteners should not be used in weight loss. What do you make of that? Yeah, I have to disagree with that. Uh, and they left out in their review, their uh, meta-analysis, uh, it happens to be our study, but, uh, but it is probably the most detailed long-term study looking at weight change uh, in an observational manner. Again, we followed tens of thousands of people and compared changes in weight among people who started using diet sodas versus people who started using sugar-sweetened beverages or increased their amounts of sugar-sweetened beverages. And there was no increase in weight with uh, artificial sweeteners and definitely an increase in weight with the uh, regular sugary beverages. So, And there are other randomized trials that have looked at 
uh, replacing sugar-sweetened beverage with, with artificially sweetened beverages. And there were some benefits in uh, weight change. Uh, not in every study, not completely consistent, but I think in the best studies there is some benefit in helping people get off of uh, sugary-sweetened beverages. So that's the, that's the place, if we're going to use them, uh, they may have some use, sort of, again, like a nicotine patch, mm-hmm. helping people who are really having a hard time reducing their sugar-sweetened beverages. There, I think there is some role, mm-hmm. but not on a pr- as a primary beverage on an everyday basis for the whole of someone's life. Could there be a link between artificial sweeteners and the increased risk of heart disease? And I bring that up because there was a study in Brit- the British Medical Journal of last year of 103,000 people. And let me quote from the conclusion suggest a potential direct association between higher artificial sweetener consumption, especially aspartame, acelfamame, potassium, and sucralose, and increased cardiovascular disease risk. They remain a controversial topic. They're currently being reevaluated by the European Food Safety Authority and the WHO and other health agencies. Dr. Willett, has your studies shown any connection? Uh, we've Again, in that, you just uh, in that mouthful mentioned a whole bunch of different molecules, <laughs> and almost for sure they're going to have different implications for health. Again, some of those were sh- were uh, sh- sugar alcohols, where I do have some concerns. But uh, we have looked at artificially sweetened beverages, which would be aspartame, and we don't see uh, an increase in cardiovascular disease or uh, overall mortality. Maybe a hint in people consuming a, a, just a tight little blip in people consuming consuming four or more servings a day. But again, uh, contrast that with uh, regular sugar-sweetened beverages. There's a huge contrast. There's definitely increases in diabetes, cardiovascular disease with regular sugar-sweetened beverages. Okay. Let's go to the phones to James in Portland, Oregon. Hi, James. Hi. Uh, My question is uh, about the relationship between sucralose and, uh, to a lesser extent, aspartame with SIBO and IBS. And also, do you think that the, there's a correlation between the increase in um, larger numbers of young people developing colon cancer and the increase in the amount of sucralose use? Yeah, there has been that uptick. Uh, I don't think we have any direct evidence of that. Uh, again, uh, if someone is having, well, like with irritable bowel syndrome that you mentioned, if someone's having um, symptoms, there's no harm in and taking some of these artificial sweeteners, there's no harm in getting off of them and seeing if the symptoms improve. I think you can be your own judge in something like that. Uh, but uh, in terms of the increase in risk of colorectal cancer in younger individuals, I'm basically mostly under 50, uh, I don't think we have any evidence that that's mm. due to artificial sweetener mm-hmm. use. Uh, definitely part of it is due to the increasing rates of overweight and obesity, uh, whether that explains all of this increase in uh, of colorectal cancer, uh, it's not so clear, but a fairly substantial piece uh, is explained by the increase in overweight and obesity. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Question from Facebook. Do artificial sweeteners raise insulin levels? And what are the resulting consequences? Now, I've heard of research way, you know, I can't remember when, where the body may be tricked into thinking that it's not an artificial <laughs> sweetener when you when you taste it. Could that be happening, Dr. Willett? Uh, again, uh, it depends what you're comparing it to, but there's definitely not the same increase in blood sugar, very little increase in blood sugar and insulin response to that as we would get from a regular sugar uh, source. 
So, so there has been this hypothesis that uh, they may be a problem because th uh, they uh, keep us conditioned to a high level of sweetness, and therefore we want to mm. eat a lot of sweet foods and beverages. And there may be something to that. Uh, and most of the evidence has not supported that, but I think it's I, I'm I, I think that's still a possibility. And again, that's uh, an issue of. Um, keeping this expectation of high level of sweetness in everything we eat and drink uh, is pushing in a, a direction of a less healthy diet. It's, it is going to be harder to appreciate the gentle sweetness of a fresh carrot or a, a fresh apple if we expect everything to be super sweet. So uh, the... Um, and the food industry probably an could answer many of these questions better than any of us in the scientific community because they spend vast amounts of money yeah. identifying just how much sweetness Americans expect to consume in their foods. And it, they know if they go down a little bit, they can lose market share. So they're keeping us conditioned to this very high level of sweetness it's in all, our It's in all our about system. the money again as we keep. Sam in South Carolina, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Sam. Are you Hi. there? Hey. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't have a question. It's just more of an observation. Uh, I I wait tables, uh, and I've been doing it for years, and I've noticed that people who drink diet soda uh, want their, their diet soda refilled at a much higher rate than any other uh, soft drink. Even the sugary soft drink? Even the sugary soft drinks, it's always the diet sodas uh, that I'm uh, constantly refilling. Wow, that's that's a great observation. Let me get a reaction. Thanks, Sam. Mm -hmm. uh, I see Margie there. You're <laughs> smiling or laughing about that one. Uh, <laughs> I was say, how do you see me? Uh, yes, that, that that is an interesting observation, and uh, and I I agree with what Dr. Willett said. I think people can become accustomed to this sweetness. In, in their beverages and 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 I, I don't know in, in terms of that specific example but that's also a reason to be cautious with with children um, whether giving children uh, artificially sweetened beverages or other foods because that you know they could develop a, a taste for sweetness that you know, then tracks into adulthood so um, I think uh, you know it's, it's something to keep in mind and and generally speaking, people who drink or consume a lot of uh, low-calorie sweeteners or artificially uh, artificial sweeteners don't necessarily have better diets, better diet quality. Studies have shown that they may have worse diet quality and actually consume um, more added sugar from other sources, too. Well, so there's, there is the, the message that, uh, you know— the, the takeaway is uh, if you have to use artificial sweeteners, go ahead, but it, it's better to not be so sweet. Calm down uh, your, your taste buds for uh, expecting all this sweetness. I want to thank both of you for taking time to be with us today. Marjorie McCullough, Senior Scientific Director of Epidemiology Research. That's at the American Cancer Society based in Atlanta. Dr. Walter Willett, Professor of Epidemiology and Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health based in, of course, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. 
Thank you. Thank Have a you. good weekend. You too. Mm-hmm. Here are some of the folks who helped make this show happen. Our radio producers, Kathleen Davis, Rasha Aridi, Dee Peterschmidt, and Shoshana Buxbaum. Our director and senior producer is Charles Berquist. And, of course, Le- B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. And we had help this hour from audio engineers Lisa Goslin and Kevin Wolf. Of course, if you missed any part of the program or you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts. Or you can even now ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato.